and welcome to the season two premiere of Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast where we fangirl about Percybeth and talk about a bunch of other stuff that stresses us out in these books by Rick Riordan. <laughs> we are so excited to be back talking about the heroes of Olympus this season, however long it takes us. Excited to be on this journey. <laughs> Today, we're talking about the lost hero with a very special guest from another podcast you may know. So stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm going to start this off by saying hello to Carter. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm a little jazzed on some nitro cold brew. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm honestly feeling apprehensive about this episode just because, <laughs> like, we've been texting a lot about, about how to do this and, like, how to structure it differently, how to just emotionally approach this book that we have a lot of different feelings about. But I think it's going to be good. I think we landed on an approach that's going to be fine. Yes. Before yeah. we talk about more of our difficult feelings with this book, I'm going to introduce our very special guest today. Hi, Brayden! Hello! Yay! Brayden is back with his really excellent mic that's better than both of our mics and putting our <laughs> mics to shame. Oh, thank you very much. It makes up for the fact that the other two people on my podcast don't have mics. Um, <laughs> I think it that balances really well. Yes. yes. <laughs> One good microphone is... Is enough for everyone. Yes. Wait, so you're from another podcast. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I, I am from Return to Camp Half-Blood, which is a podcast I do with two of my friends from college, where we go two by two chapters and we read uh, the chapters through a theme and try to analyze it through a theme. It's kind of like, I like to call it the English class you never knew you wanted. Uh, <laughs> we also get very sidetracked and just talk about how capitalism sucks and how everything should be a little more gay. So... Excellent. And that's why we are so happy to have you here. I've got a couple <laughs> fun questions for you. All right. All Let's right. go with the first question, classic from season one. How did you pronounce the name of Percy Centaur Mentor when you were reading these books as a kid? Chiron. Damn it. Boring. I think, I think, I don't know. I So I'm a big, I like audiobooks because I have ADD and that works well for me, especially like I'll do like both at once sometimes. Uh, so mm. I pronounce ev everything mostly as they do in the audiobooks, except for Talia, because they call her Thalia in the audiobooks, and I hate that. Oh my god! I had no I idea. Didn't know that. It's that's disgusting. So but that's a good reason to know how to pronounce things. Wow. Maybe we should try the audiobooks. I've never oh. listened to them before. <laughs> They're and really like, good. Like our doc right now is just littered with all of these like little comments to YouTube videos that just pronounce different names <laughs> of like things. the giants, especially. Would save a lot of time. My only engaging with the audiobooks <laughs> was I was watching like Piper fan videos in preparation for this episode, and the, one of them is like an eight minute video that's just narrated by like different snippets of quotes from the audiobooks. I don't like the narration that much. I I don't love the narrator for um the Heroes of Olympus series, but the Percy Jackson series Jesse Bernstein is fantastic. He has the Percy voice down, but there's too many narrators for the Heroes of Olympus for this man to nail and his, he has these weird 
masculine voices that are just like do, 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 which is very bizarre like he is a man i don't know why he's trying to sound like a man but it makes him sound very stupid wait that's really funny though because that is how men sound it is you're right you're not that wrong. is how a third of this book actually two-thirds of this book sound uh-huh. okay i'll ask a couple more questions for fun all right all right <laughs> rapid fire who's your favorite minor god Hecate. Great yes. answer. Okay, dream actor to play Percy in the Disney Plus series. To play Percy? Age doesn't matter. Age doesn't matter. Oh, um, Chris McCarroll then. The, the guy who played him in the, the Broadway show. <gasps> oh, I'm going to pretend I didn't know who that was. Okay. I'm in, love with, <laughs> I'm in love with him. He's like so beautiful. Yes, and according to yeah. Jarrell, he really is Percy IRL. So that's wonderful. Yes, I love it. Okay, what good, good shit have you been watching lately? Um, I just binged all the Marvel movies. Uh, that was Excellent. my winter break project, and I finished it yes. too fast. Oh, damn. So now I'm watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because I have nothing else to watch. Great. So I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm not going to talk about the chilling adventures of Sabrina. I'm going to f- shove it back in. Okay. <laughs> then... <laughs> All of that, now that we know Brayden a little bit. Also, I'm Erica. That's important for people who are new It is here. important. <laughs> Thank you. I'll just go ahead and say, we really struggled on how we were going to cover The Lost Hero. We talked to a lot of people about it. We asked a lot of former guests. We really considered skipping it all together um, and jumping right to the son of Neptune. We considered just doing all of it in like one episode. Because frankly, this podcast is about Persebeth and what's not in this book, Persebeth. So what we settled on after much deliberation is that we're going to do three episodes dedicated to The Lost Hero, each of them focusing on a different one of the narrators for this book. So today we are going to talk about Piper. I'm going to toss this to Carter to give us just the briefest summary of this book, just so we're all on the same page if it's been a while since you read The Lost Hero, because frankly, literally, why would you reread this book? (laughs) There's no purpose. Yeah. um, The book starts out from Jason's perspective on a bus. He wakes up. He's with these two other kids, Piper and Leo. He doesn't remember anything. And they're, I believe, on a field trip to the Grand Canyon. Later, we find out that Jason was dropped there with a wiped memory by the goddess Juno. We're pretty sure it's Juno. I think in this book, they're still a little bit unclear about the naming convention sometimes, but we're going to go with that. You know, (laughs) it very quickly becomes apparent that all three of them are demigods. Um, They get attacked by one of their classmates who is actually a storm spirit. Things kind of go awry. Jason flies to save the day, rescue Piper. And then they get picked up by Annabeth, who reveals to us that Percy is missing. With that, we fly over with these three to Camp Half-Blood. They reintroduce Camp Half-Blood to us for some reason over the course of two whole chapters. Why not? There are a few things that have changed, uh, like really minor details. Like the camp is sort of better, as you might remember Percy's wish at the end of The Last Olympian is that the gods do some things better. So they do expect that claimings happen earlier, that more half-bloods are arriving, and that there are like cabins for the minor gods. That's sort of cool. But also we find out that the gods have withdrawn recently. Over the course of this like intro time that we're at camp getting acclimated, basically we get in a really drawn out fashion, the structure and the like thrust of the quest, which is that Hera has been kidnapped by some mysterious forces related to the giants and Gaia. It becomes clear as we, you know, like read along exactly what the details of that are, but that they basically need to rescue Hera before the solstice. Leo goes and finds the, you know, dragon that's been ruining things for everyone in camp and especially the Hephaestus cabin. He tames it with his special fire powers and they um, go off, Leo, Piper, and Jason, on their quest. In the meantime, this is sort of just threaded through everything. A giant, who we later find out is Enceladus. It's literally there. This is one of those links that we have in the cool talk. Enceladus um, is blackmailing Piper. Like, he's kidnapped her dad, and he is trying to get her to betray the quest. They make their way across the continental U.S., as they always do. This time, they hit out um, Boreas the North Wind. um, In Canada? In Quebec? 
I believe this is the first time we leave the continent. No, no, I guess Sea of Monsters. But this is the first time we're going to Canada in the books, I believe. That's fun. We hit up a Cyclops family in an abandoned, like, former auto warehouse somewhere in the industrial, like, North Midwest. In Detroit! Um, we visit Medea, like the famed oh, witch. Oh, and we're going to have to talk about that later. We go to Nebraska because for some reason King Minos is there. They go and they meet some werewolves who are thwarted by the hunters. Um, Yay! Which is good, not only because we love the hunters, but because also another plot point that we forgot to mention earlier, Jason is actually related to Talia. They are siblings. Um, we'll talk about this more, I think, in the Jason episode. They, from there, go to visit Aeolus, the um, king of the winds. In, I believe it's Pikes Peak, Colorado, right? Um, yep. They deliver the storm spirits that they got from Medea to Aeolus, who's grateful, gives them some information, and then tries to kill them. They run away from Aeolus with assistance from... I think it's kind of ambiguous. It's like Aphrodite and also the storm... The, um, what's her name? Melly? They, like... N- Melly? Melly? Some combination of those two forces helps them to survive. They end up in NorCal for basically the final phase of the quest, which involves them first going to like rescue Piper's dad from Enceladus, the giant, and then going to rescue Hera, who is at um, Jack Kerouac's wolf house. No, um, Jack London. Jack London. I get those people confused all Jack the time. Jack Kerouac is the beat poet. You're so correct. Anyway, <laughs> um, they're there. The hunters are also kind of helping out. The king of the giants, Porphyrian, is being resurrected there using Hera's stolen essence. He rises... They kind of fight him, but he, like, basically runs away to fight us in a later sequel. That's basically what happens in this book. There are, like, a few threads that are running through all of this. The whole time, they're discovering new things about the Roman-Greek binary, which at the beginning of the book, none of the demigods really know anything about. And at the end of the book, we learn is, like, a really important thing and potentially the cause of past civil wars and future civil wars. They say a lot about how this has the potential to be, like, a really disastrous conflict without... I feel like giving really any reasons why they hate each other or why we should expect them to fight. We also get that, you know, Jason, Piper, and Leo are the first three of, like, the seven in the next big prophecy. And that they need to go eventually to Greece to fight Gaia there and prevent her and the giants from taking over. Is there anything else we need? Oh, yes. You might have noticed that Medea and Minos are characters in this. And that's because... In case there weren't enough plot elements, death is also broken. So all of these evil mortal villains from Greek mythology are going to be coming back and are going to be important antagonists for us throughout the rest of the series. And that's bad. And they're going to try and fix that. And at the end of the book, we find out, most importantly, perhaps, that (laughs) um, this whole time, Percy has been also, we assume, kidnapped by Juno. He is the reverse side of this exchange that Jason is a part of. So he is probably somewhere around the Roman camp without his memory. Dun, 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 cliffhanger. We'll pick up on that next book. Did I leave anything out? I think that's like roughly everything that happens, no. right? Should we do a quick reminder of the uh, Rachel Great Prophecy? Seven half-bloods shall answer the call to storm or fire. The world must fall. An oath to keep with a final breath. And foes bear armed to the doors of death. <laughs> For memory. Yeah, no, we've been over this. Important. <laughs> if that plot summary of this book sounded long and confusing and boring, that's because it literally is. I find this book so difficult to read for so many reasons. Obviously, the biggest complaint from the fandom is that there's no Percy. It's not in Percy's voice. And to make matters worse, it's not really in anyone's voice. Because yes. it's more of like a, well, it's not an omnipotent third person. What is this called when I should have looked it's this like up? It's a focalized third person narrator, limited perspective. Limited perspective third-person narrator, which jumps between Piper, Jason, and Leo. I, I Okay, I, I just feel like there are maybe, like, too, too many plot elements. I think we could have done with, like, one fewer one of those, you know, like, stops along the journey west 
where we have a thing happen. And I also think we could have done without one of the whole like overarching conflicts that they have to deal with. Because I think there are too many, and I don't personally feel like they intersect with each other very cleanly in this book. I don't know what other people's thoughts are about that or about the general plot structure. I mean, first off, this book is just too long. It's so yeah. long. long. It's so long. 550 pages. <laughs> Honestly, the thing that I would drop is the wind spirit thing. I like Coach Hedge. I'm glad Ho- Coach Hedge gets there. But mm-hmm. I don't need the whole plot line of rescuing him. I like the Medea stop. I like Medea more than yeah. Minos. I would get rid of Minos if I got rid of a stop. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the whole Coach Hedge subplot is distracting from the, yeah. the overarching plot of the whole series. It doesn't matter. So yes. We did not mention that. <laughs> you might have noticed in this overview. But Coach Hedge is a satyr who is supposed to be the protector for like these kids. He gets kidnapped like at the very beginning, basically. And he's sort of, I feel like they make him an afternote in the story too. Like they just sort of happen to find him. He's with Medea. He's with Medea and the other wind spirits. Yes. And he sort of helps them, but also sort of gets in the way. It's just like a, I don't know. I don't want to go too hard on Coach Hedge because I find him to be one of the characters in this book that actually has like a genuine voice in a way that a lot of them don't <laughs> really have. But um, but yeah, it is a weird plot point. I would personally, like, I think the, the B arc for me that really gets in the way is like the Piper Dad thing. Really? <laughs> like that might be a, like a hot take. Mm. But that's one that I, like, looking back on it, I'm like, I'm sort of confused about why it's there. And like, I don't feel like it really accomplishes anything for Piper other than just sort of being a romantic roadblock and doesn't like materially affect the plot that much and that like nothing really changes before and after her reveal about like the stops that they have to hit because I feel like no matter what they're gonna have to challenge this giant and they're gonna have to try and rescue the dad and like she's not going to be able to betray the friends because that won't get her anything right I don't know yeah it kind of fell flat for me I think Minos is is random I get that we kind of get like a Jason power up at that stop but I think there was more clever ways to weave that Mm. in in a more concise way i definitely don't get the werewolves at the end i think that's confusing especially because of the like evil werewolf positive wolf dogs thing that we get from the (laughs) hunters is like just confusing at the very end of the book and there's already so many things that we're trying to keep track of also lupa lupa and her wolf pack also shows up so they're three separate wolf wolf entities You know, none of us are wolf girls. Maybe that is something different for other people. But for me, it was a little too much of the wolf action. I think going to Canada was a little confusing for me because of the whole fact that this whole time we've been talking about America and then suddenly it became the North American continent. And then also next book, we find out that there are limits because Alaska is beyond that. But like the Caribbean is not. And it's just a whole... He tries to develop this (laughs) almost like larger cinematic universe, I'm going to call it, uh, (laughs) with all of these gods existing simultaneously right red pyramid was already out at this which point. i appreciate but doesn't work well if you think about it too much i like mm-hmm. it i love it i love it i love that we have the king chronicles and magnus chase mm-hmm. and we have all the the rick Ryden and present stuff that yeah. maybe happens mm-hmm. all in the same universe but they never really address the other books so it's a little confusing it just gets confusing when we talk about like territory and like oh this Greek god is in Canada because he likes to be in the north. I, it's very confusing. Yeah, the, the northernmost settlement in America. Like, isn't that definitely not Quebec also? It's but not. Like, Quebec is like the southernmost part of Canada, basically. Like All of this to say, interesting segue into talking about Piper in this book. I will say, to be honest, I, I haven't reread Heroes of Olympus since it initially happened. So I just had a vague memory of disliking Piper. And I 
changed my mind at the end of this book. I changed my mind. Um, (laughs) Carter's confused. Brandon's excited. (laughs) Um, I changed my mind. I do quite like Piper, especially like her journey later on. Let's just start with like Piper at the very beginning of the book. I think it's really exciting that that Annabeth is like literally, she's in like the first couple chapters and like the last Mm -hmm. chapter of this book. And we only see her, we don't get her voice, which is really frustrating. Obviously she's like busy, busy looking for Percy who is missing. But at the very beginning of the book, when they get to Camp Half-Blood, Annabeth and, uh, Rachel are kind of like in charge of Piper for a hot sec and like leading her around and I just the jump the jump to Annabeth and Rachel in this book the from the beginning to the end of Last Olympian is like so beautiful and I just love to see that they are friends now and also they've kind of been united in this like figuring out the great prophecy and the Percy thing and I just really like to see the girl squad that is Annabeth Rachel and Piper it makes my heart happy and it's way more powerful than any of the Annabeth Rachel BS that takes place in what is the original series called Percy Jackson and the Olympians <laughs> Annabeth is yeah I think not to be too whatever about it but for me Annabeth is the best part of this book like I, I'm <laughs> so overjoyed whenever she comes in even though like it like there are elements of it that are so really frustrating to me and like every time we f- see her like I feel like like you said like her voice is kind of gone like I don't feel like when her lines of dialogue sound the same to me as they did in the earlier books and it like mm-hmm. really scared me but also at the same time they're close enough for me where I'm like okay I feel like this is a warm presence like I understand who this person is in like a real concrete way and also like Annabeth is like like, Chiron hits sort of a new low for, for me in the entire series in terms of, like, how like it useless, was possible. how irritating he's being. Like, I did not think it was possible. But, like, in this book, his whole thing is just show, he barely shows up and he just says, like, oh, I have a lot of secrets that I can't tell you about because they're so dangerous. And that's all he says! Like, why, why even say anything? But so, like, basically what we get because of that is, like, Annabeth and Rachel sort of just teaming up and really just being like, we have to run this shit. No one else is doing anything. And that is sort of Rachel, who showed up five seconds ago, is suddenly in charge of everything. Hilarious how men be. <laughs> I really, I really did like though how Annabeth finally kind of got over her uh, perspective of Chiron being like the hero to her. Yes, uh, because yes. she was like, "Wow, this stupid old horse doesn't know anything." So I'm going to take everything into my own hands, and she kind of, in a weird way, becomes the Chiron but in a good way of the yeah the overall series because she is that that wise presence even though Chiron mm-hmm. Chiron never is that wise presence that he's supposed to be yeah but they stop waiting for him to be yeah. and that is really exciting I think yeah Annabeth is, has like a, a Chiron-esque role in this book where she kind of like dispenses what information she has and then Piper has the Annabeth-esque role in the quest where she yes. has the like vague knowledge of Greek history so let's just talk about Piper now um mm-hmm. I already said I like her Brayden please <laughs> tell us your opinions of Piper I love Piper McLean she is my favorite of the seven she is like tied with Nico to be my favorite character in the series. I've always found myself to attach more to the female characters in books than male characters. Like just being queer, it's an experience I relate to more while like I love Percy. I just relate to the female characters a lot more often and I love Annabeth, but Piper is very different than Annabeth in a way that relates more to me. I also would identify if we were were choosing our godly parents uh, as a child of Aphrodite, because oh yes I, i've seen that instagram post oh yes. i know about it because <laughs> i think a lot of the female gods are often sidelined and marginalized in a way that the male gods are never subject to they're often demonized 
and I think they're a lot more powerful than they're given credit for, um, mm. especially in the first series. I think the Heroes of Olympus does some good things to rectify that. And I think one of mm. them is the character of Piper. I think she presents a very different side of Aphrodite than we get in the right. original series. And she's the premier reason that I would say I would be a child of Aphrodite because I like Piper so much. Mm-hmm. I think in modern uh, feminist movements, there's often a, a repression of femininity and all of culture, like misogyny is re- rep- <laughs> repressing femininity. And in a lot of feminist movement, it's like, oh, women have to be more masculine to be right. equal. And I like that she's very empowering uh, of femininity and as like a person who identifies as male but is more feminine, I like the the empowerment of those traits in this character. Um, yeah, yeah, I I agree. I really quite like Piper's journey with her femininity. We only get like the very beginning of it in this book, and I know it really grows throughout the series. And I know it also supposedly again, we have not read Trials of Apollo, and we are going to not read Trials of Apollo until we get there. Neither has Brayden, so we're going in this blank. But I, we hear there are some developments. With yep. Piper in the Trials of Apollo, they make a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, as a woman who has struggled with femininity, I do appreciate this, like, arc for her. I think that the question of what is Aphrodite? What does Aphrodite mean? What does the Aphrodite cabin stand for? Who is she as a goddess? Is really interesting and very different from the one snapshot of her that we get in whatever, if it's like, what is it, Titan's Curse? Yes, it's Titan's Curse where she meets Percy in the car. Yes. Yeah. I think it's really interesting leading up to that scene that Piper has with her mom in her dream and then kind of her little uh, row with uh, Drew Tanaka in the beginning and then how she kind of decides to take over the Aphrodite cabin in the end, I think is interesting. I think, okay, we definitely need to talk more about Drew. Um, (laughs) Drew Tanaka, (laughs) Jesus queen. She's so terribly written. Like she's the worst, like Regina George um, carbon copy, but with no, none of the personality of Regina George. She's just a mean girl with no motivation to be mean and is weirdly Should we like... in? <laughs> Carter, did you picture... I have to ask because this also, you know, connects to what we need to talk about, this whole Piper being specifically biracial thing. Did you picture Drew as like an like a fully Asian girl or like a Hoppa girl? I Drew in my head was always like an ABG. Like she was like... <laughs> like I, I don't know. Yeah, it didn't... <laughs> It didn't, I didn't think about it that much the first time I read it. So, okay. like, the image I had from back then was, I don't know. Like, they, they, they don't talk about it. They, like, yeah. I, there are just so many threads that I feel like we do, that we need to, like, tackle simultaneously. We really can't. But, like, yeah, Piper's, like, the only character in this book who explicitly self-identifies as biracial. Even though, of course, there are lots of characters who presumably are characters of color who do not ever talk about their identity that way. And I never race that way by anyone else. I think that they, they it's ambiguous with Drew, but yeah, I would agree yeah. with all the critiques that were leveled about Drew. She's not a real person. Like they made her the worst <laughs> possible version of this. Like every yeah. every other incarnation of this character is better. Whether we're talking about like London Tipton, who I have to assume is the basis for this character, um, agree. 100%. Yes, <laughs> or whether you know like um, yeah, Regina George, Gretchen Wieners any of the Heathers, like, they're all better versions of this so much more because they have, like, actual goals. They have actual perspectives. They have, you know, ideas about life and priorities. And they're funnier. They're, like, it's not even like Drew is a particularly aesthetically interesting hollow caricature either. Her jokes are not good. Her comebacks are not sharp. She's not particularly mean or scary or, like, campy Mm -hmm. or funny. Yeah, 
it just really yeah. frustrates me because like it, it's it's not even like there is like a dearth of good examples that you could draw on for lots of very very different takes that you could go for even like these sort of inherently limiting trope of like the mean girl who runs things and it's sort of none of those it's none of those all at once he somehow avoided yeah. all of the different ways that it's been made interesting and it's yeah. really frustrating and also i just i can't explain why like i don't feel like i can articulate that it is racist if it is racist <laughs> but it has always made me uncomfortable and yeah I think it's because the three Asian characters that we, like, firmly get are Ethan Nakamura, Drew Tanaka, and Frank. And, like, we don't really <laughs> like any of them. And it's just disappointing. Um, I don't know. Kind of like Ethan. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think, I think the stereotype of this character often comes as a critique of the privilege of white women. And then so that mm. aspect of it is lost when you make her a, yeah. a, a woman of color. It's just awful writing. Even if she were, like... In that, I, I don't know, I, I feel like it hurt the plot, the plot, like, the plot purpose of Drew Shinaka is supposed to be, like, to show, like, the bad side of Aphrodite. The bad right? side of Aphrodite, yes. But like that's the, the thing, is, like, I feel the the like the book has way overdone it already on that. Like, if you, like, read yes. their portrayals of Aphrodite for, like, the entire first five books of, like, the original Percy Jackson series, that is, like, a, like a really gross sort of, like, anti-femme caricature of Aphrodite. And Piper already sort of, like, has internalized a lot of that herself. Mm -hmm. I feel like we get oh, a lot yeah. of that in her own journey of her just being like, I'm not one of the I'm pretty, pretty girls. Yes, like, exactly. I hate makeup and that makes me better. Sort of, like, not really, but, like, a little bit. And she's sort of wrestling with that. Yes. And it feels like she is just fine to wrestle with that on her own <laughs> without, like... Literally... Like, newsflash Rick Riordan, we didn't need an extra mean female character to do the work of what we as women are already mean to ourselves about. Like, Piper could have shown up in this book with no knowledge of Greek history and already hated herself in the way that she hates Drew Tanaka. And, like, we just didn't need her. And on top of that, there's also Medea. Like, Medea serves almost the exact same function of being, like, the version... Like, oh, we didn't mention Drew also has charms being like Piper and like Medea. And it just, to me, feels very redundant to do yeah. all of that and for... The, the story for, like, both Drew and Medea to basically just be like, this is what it looks like when you're a bad charm seeker. This is, like, the bad version of femininity that you kind of want, but not really, and you need to untangle for yourself, you know? It's a weird... It's kind of insulting to the reader, I feel like, because <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like you get that journey of, of Piper on her own, but Drew is, like, the physical manifestation of it, so it's clear yeah. that when when Piper, like, overthrows her... It's mm -hmm. like, oh, it's like, oh, she's embracing her femininity, but also overcoming the toxic side of it, which we already mm -hmm. get by her journey. And yeah, no, but it's kind of assuming the re reader doesn't get that and has to like physically manifest it in a, just a stupid way. Yes. <laughs> This yes. is one of my favorite lines in the whole book on after after Piper's 550 page journey on like what does Aphrodite represent? She like faces Drew and she's like <laughs> you've turned you can do this it. cabin. I can't do it. Page five twenty three. She says, "You've turned this cabin into a dictatorship." Drew, Selena Boer Beauregard knew better than that. <laughs> Aphrodite is about love and beauty, being loving, spreading beauty, good friends, good times, good deeds, not just looking good. <laughs> and then she defeats Drew. Drew becomes sort of like her, like. She becomes like a husk of her former self, who we never hear from again. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense. Although it does, 
Okay, I feel like we've been sort of circling around like this discussion of like, yeah, like what is Aphrodite supposed to mean? Like what is Rick trying to say about her through this new incarnation? And I guess specifically through her training relationship with Piper, who at the beginning is really like does not expect Aphrodite to be her mom, is disappointed, upset, and then sort of comes to terms with it as we go through the book. I mean, I think the hard thing in discussing this is I don't know if Rick did any of it intentionally. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like he, he doesn't know what Aphrodite is, and he wants to uh, suggest alternatives, but never really strongly argues for one or the other. I think yeah. I think the narrative does end up develop, developing well across these books, but I don't think it was an intentional choice. I think that might give him a little too much credit. Yeah, yes. I mean, the thing, so like, Annabeth is a great character, but like, we know a little bit that like, the love story of Persebeth is kind of based on like Rick's love story with his wife who he met when he was like in middle school or something like that and they got married like when they were in college or just out of college something like that which leads me to believe that like Annabeth is based on his wife you know and that he like knows this female person in real life very intimately and therefore could write her but like struggles to settle on another female character that makes sense um in the Heroes of Olympus and eventually it gets there like Brayden said but it's definitely not all like intentional at first which also I think just a point that I was thinking about is that like she so obviously was like a tangent on the storyboard from Rachel Elizabeth Dare. Like she's so similar to her, her initial backstory of being like rich kid who like steals stuff. Which is the worst. Literally yeah. such an unforgivable place yes. to start. But um. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I would love to talk about the Aphrodite dream scene because, yeah. you know, it kind of feels like everything is leading up to that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, until then, Piper really does not feel positively about being a child of Aphrodite um, at all. She's never seen or met her mom before or encountered her in any way. And then Aphrodite appears to her in a dream in, like, this, like, dream zone of the Medea department store. And I kind of love how she's just, like, trying on clothes the whole time and, like, picking shit out and, like, does this look good? Like, it's very, it seems very, like, familiar to me in, like, a feminine mentor way (laughs) aphrodite talks about how like she is the oldest of the olympian gods technically because she rose from the sea from the sea foam that appeared when like uranus was thrown into the sea they they don't say it but specifically let's be clear uranus's dick it was uranus's dick foam (laughs) (laughs) thank you for the clarification (laughs) yep yes Yes. and as we talked about in you know previous special episode about queering mythology like there are lots of different interesting representations of aphrodite and venus because you know love is a big deal and like love is something ancient and like older than many of the gods themselves and so aphrodite points out that like my lineage of demigods is more important than you would think and like don't let it be what it isn't like i am more powerful than people give me credit for my kids are more powerful and like true beauty is this is the interesting word choice like perfection is like feeling perfectly at peace with yourself which she says is difficult because as gods we're always changing and i also think that's plays into piper as like somebody who's biracial and like walks different cultural lines as somebody who's like constantly changing and feeling not at peace with herself that like it's not until you're at peace with yourself that you are like beautiful blah 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 but it's just like again it's a little bit messy I don't know if perfection is the word that we were looking for in that scene I mean yeah I agree that perfection perfection is not necessarily the right word to to encapsulate what she's trying to say I think it comes across but I don't like the wording of it yeah um I think the idea is that Aphrodite is supposed to represent like the power of the feminine aspects that in society are shamed and that beauty is more about embracing yourself and caring like self-care I think is something 
that that Aphrodite is not associated with but should be associated with um, <laughs> because I think a lot of love and beauty comes from self-care uh, yeah. and like you can't be like if you can't love yourself you can't uh, love someone else like a RuPaul <laughs> saying but I, I think it's it's about, about like you have to acknowledge yourself and accept yourself to be able to work among other people and I think mm-hmm. that's what Aphrodite is trying to represent and I, I also think it's interesting like how you're bringing up how she's the oldest of the gods an interesting thing to think about with that is that not only is like in the story she older than the other Greek gods but like actually in the development of like religion she's developed from a Mesopotamian gods the goddess Ishtar who was a huge Mesopotamian god she was also a big Sumerian god I can't remember what the name of that goddess was but historically the idea of Aphrodite is so much older than the ideas of the other Greek gods and it's interesting how she's been a very consistent through line through a lot of powerful cultures and how she's been very powerful in the heights of all of those cultures. But now in the modern day and a lot of tellings of the stories that involve Aphrodite, she is either weak or villainous. And I think it's important <laughs> to reframe that. Yeah. This is, I just Googled real quick, Sumerian, Inanna, Mesopotamian, Ishtar, and Phoenician Astarte. So apologize for mispronouncing those. But that's such a good point. Like, it'd definitely be interesting to, and I'm sure there are so many academics in the past who have focused on this, but like doing a study of like how Aphrodite has been represented in culture and like how women have been uh, given rights in cultures um, and how like femininity has been valued at the end you know she tells off drew she says good times good friends good deeds which to me makes no sense after everything that we just talked about um it is so random but then on the very like half a page later she's also like and drew jason is mine (laughs) so and we're and we're supposed to be like yes queen but instead we're like no girl Yeah, that's like the one fault of piper in my eyes is that she's dating jason i have no love for jason period I don't Jason know. Mention, gross. <laughs> do you want to mention this point from down a little lower, Carter, about this whole... Does yeah, there's a actually... whole separate section in this just complaining about Piper's relationship with Jason in, like, our notes. It doesn't make that much sense to me, frankly. I mean, like, I can sort of get it on the level of, like... I don't know. Like, we've all been there, like, but I, I just you've feel like you've never seen a white book... man before in your life, and you're like, oh, here's one... <laughs> The book, to me, like, never really, like, addresses that question in a satisfying way or, like, treats that relationship beyond the level of, like, like, does she actually like him? Like, I don't know. Should she actually like him? Probably not. But, like, does he actually like her? Yeah. Like, none of this to me feels really clear. And, like, I'm not, like, motivated to root for them through, like, any of their actual interactions with each other. Like, from the beginning, like, this is the, 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 the premise of their relationship is that, like, they have... Or the Pipers imagined them to be dating. Jason has no memory of this. And they were not actually. Like, they have no pre-existing relationship. But that memory is basically powerful enough for both. Their memory and, I guess, like, mutual physical attraction at the beginning is enough for them to just sort of be like, yeah, this makes sense. We should do it. But, like, beyond that, like, we don't really get that much in the way of, like, them being compatible as just, like, people who coexist together. Like, do they have similar interests? Do they have banter? Do they, yeah. like... This, this other confusing subplot about Aphrodite where, like, she can, like, weirdly predict the future because she, like, is full of hope. The that dream that she has where they kiss on the rooftop is mirrored at the end and, like, happens in reality. So I feel like as the reader, we're supposed to believe that even though those memories didn't actually happen, that, like, 
they could have because like that love is there. Yeah, and I just don't like that because they didn't happen and they didn't (laughs) need to because we hate Jason and none of that is important. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I like the beginning of it. I like what the the loss of that relationship does for Piper's arc. I think that sets her up in a very interesting way. I hate that they get back together at the end because it makes no sense. Jason doesn't have a personality. Mm-hmm. No, yes. and Piper does. Like Piper does have a personality. Jason doesn't. I, I just don't understand. Point? I just don't understand. I don't understand it either. I think he's just a just, tall blonde man. He's just a tall blonde man, and she is young. Yeah, and that's why. And like that's why I love her. And like <laughs> I felt myself more aligned with her. And like I do think we should talk about this moment at the end. This is on like almost the very end after this like Aphrodite confrontation where she pulls out this card that Talia gave her for the hunters mm-hmm. um and she like burns it in an eternal fire and then she walks away with Jason and I think there's so many ways to read that I actually really liked it reading it this time because you know Jason sucking aside I think it's kind of a, another cute representation of like what we were saying that there's multiple ways to be a feminist and there are multiple ways to be a strong woman and in this moment Piper is like choosing an aspect of herself and her like female identity that involves men and like it's okay to have men involved in your life and still be a strong woman I think is kind of a beautiful moment for her where she's like no I don't have to join the queer collective of the hunters to be who I am and to like feel good about myself I can still like have some messy moments with some Jasons and I'm still a good woman um and I'm like opening myself to that side of my life (laughs) I feel like the natural progression from from this point is to maybe have a quick conversation about charm speak as a power because this is one that I, to be honest, I still don't know how to feel about it. The first time I read it, I was deeply irritated by this and found it to be like such an insult to her character that they would do this. Now my feelings are a little more complicated. I think my primary instinct now around Charmspeak is basically just that it doesn't make sense as a power, as in like he has not finished thinking about how to write it in a way that makes sense. Rick Riordan, like in general, like for most of the powers in these books, I think he has like a fully developed idea about what the limitations are, what they can do. And he communicates that idea pretty effectively. So we have a good sense at any given time, like, okay, like is so-and-so going to be able to pull this trick out of the out of the bag to get out of this bind. With Piper, I don't feel like we ever actually get a sense for like what the parameterizations of Charm Speak are, like how she can really make it more powerful. Like, is there a way for her to practice? Is like, like <laughs> uh, the only real, I think thing we get out of this is basically like, it's hard sometimes and it works with gods, not at all. But like <laughs> beyond that, it's sort of like it feels really random to me yeah. when like she'll like they'll just be in different binds and be like okay this time it works this time i don't know i'm feeling kind of nervous so i guess it won't it, that it feels weird to me it feels i think like the gender aspect of it is something that i am very ambivalent about and also like they just don't <laughs> it's also like to me like written in a very bad way insofar as like when you when she's actually doing her charm speak it's so boring to read because it's basically just her saying like maybe it'll work this time let me try it and then we see if it works or not. Whereas, like, I feel like, if, especially with this ability, like, it would be really interesting if maybe, like, say, like, something about, like, wordplay or, like, the kind of situation she's in factors into this so she can if get it was better thriving. at it. And it's, like, interesting for us to read where we're like, okay, like, that does make sense to me, like, how she, like, pulled that off. Whereas, like, I just feel very frustrated when I read it. But I think other people have thoughts. I mean, I I agree that it's not well-defined, like, whatsoever. It doesn't really make sense how it works, 
but I do like it as it's it's another magic system I think that he introduces <laughs> because we have the mist which is the like the other big one in these series and they work very differently the mist is a little more well thought out still kind of confusing but confusing in a way that makes sense if that yeah. makes any sense but yeah the gods yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing with charm speak is I do I like that it's not dependent on beauty because I think it's implied at first that it's it's dependent on like physical attraction because a mm-hmm. lot of like magic systems that are similar seduction mind control esque mm-hmm. often rely on like physical attraction I, I'm thinking of the the Marvel comics character Lorelai in the Thor comics it's like seduction but it only works on men and mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Uh, being queer and thinking that sexuality is very fluid and that even like a straight woman can be attracted to other women like I I like that it it is kind of indiscriminatory on who it works on and it's more about the confidence part and it's convincing in a different way than seducing which I really like but it's not I agree that it's not systemic in a way that (laughs) makes it make sense but I like the idea of it. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even read the prophecy for this quest. The prophecy for this quest <laughs> kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> like, I know it doesn't. Like, I literally don't know it, which means that it's probably... Like, this prophecy is kind of simply Ooh, there so that there is quick. a prophecy there. And so that Piper and Leo are the ones who go on it. Oh, yes. Child of lightning, beware the earth. The giant's revenge, the seven shall birth. The forge and dove shall break the cage and death unleash through Hera's rage. Eh. Yeah. Literally, the third line is the only one that is like sort of long term interesting, especially given that the death that is unleashed through Hera's rage is immediately undone because, of course, death famously doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Also, this is an off topic question. And then I think we'll end with like the Piper race discussion. But why is Nico not one of the seven? I don't know, and it makes me angry. I think seven is a better number than eight. I think they need seven to do Leo's arc of being lonely, which is a weird arc. It's a weird arc. It's very strange. And then Nico, because Nico's not there the whole time. I don't know, because... He's kind of in and out. Yeah. He spends a lot of the books, like, trapped somewhere. He is in a jar. Get him. He is in a jar for most of the books. That is true. But, like, Nico and Reyna are so much more interesting than the rest of the seven, yeah. and they're not part yeah. of it. I feel like it's, like, weirdly satisfying, though, to me that, I don't know, but I feel he like really it is on the outside. Ir- yes! It would have sort of irritated yeah. me if they, like, really tried to mainstream him, you know? Like, I feel yeah. like, like we wouldn't like Nico and Reyna as much if they were in the seven, I think. That's true. I feel Maybe. Like his queer storyline comes across better almost because he is marginalized in the books as a character yeah um yeah and the, but then part of me also is like why why can't the queer character be a main character like officially so <laughs> it's yeah. frustrating and good do you want to mention katropis real quick carter this katropis also just really it, it like felt similar to charm speak to me in, in that like they never feel the need to even remotely clarify anything about this weapon <laughs> Like, why she chooses it, when it shows her things, why it shows her the things it shows her, in a world where, like, basically the powers of every other weapon are crystal clear. It's, like, not apparent to me why she would not pick a weapon that is, I don't want to say better, but, like, 
optimized for combat given that like she's not really in that many situations in this book where like it makes sense for her to be like really sneaky i feel like for all these books like they're basically not in the mortal world that much she could fully carry like a gigantic you know like four foot long double-edged sword with her the whole time and it would not cause any problems and like while that doesn't necessarily feel like the most satisfying alternative either this is another one where i feel I, i'm kind of ambivalent about it but like it doesn't make sense to me as written it's one of those archetypes in storytelling where for some reason women get knives and men yeah. get swords and it doesn't it feels like just not that out. yeah it doesn't make sense like we already and like we already had a, a main female character wield a knife and wield a knife very well yes why can't she have anything else even yeah. like something stupid like it could have been more stupid than a knife and made more sense because she never yeah. uses it as a knife like it's yes. never functional yeah. as a knife it could have been i would have accepted a shield even though that doesn't make any sense either like yeah but it, it just it just never pans out at least in this book I think for most of the books yeah she just uses it as like a bad version of a sword basically <laughs> And why? It was Rick just like searching for a way to bring in the whole Hell Trojan thing? War thing because of the whole so. founding of Rome thing, which I think we need to talk about later also because we need to talk about those myths. But just like bringing in the Trojan War and using that as a cop out. It it, it does tie in with Aphrodite well because Aphrodite is the whole like Trojan War causing thing, which is also <laughs> complicated. Yeah. But then she's also Aeneas is the son of Aphrodite. Right. Which and then leads to Rome. So I like how that ties in well, but you kind of just invented, why couldn't Helen have had a sword? <laughs> like, Helen could have had a spear, a sword, a shield, or literally just a mirror. Like, it could have just, just been a mirror. a mirror. Really cool bracelets. I don't know. Like, something fun, like a necklace or like an amulet. I love amulets. I do love an amulet. There are not enough amulets in these I books. I agree. Official complaint. Yep. There should be more necklaces with crystals and shit on them. I guess we're getting to Hazel later. Um, okay, let's dive a little bit deeper into this conversation about Piper's heritage. So it's mentioned immediately that Piper is has a famous dad. Her father is of Cherokee descent, grew up in Oklahoma, has spent his whole life running from that heritage, is now a famous actor who plays basically any ethnically ambiguous role that is not Native American. Including, interestingly, a Greek king gets rolled in with those. Which is how Piper knows all the information about yeah. uh, Greek gods from researching with her dad. So this this brings in like two different things for Piper. One of them is her relationship with her dad, which I actually really like, her needing her dad's attention, and how it connects with her relationship with her heritage, which isn't as much focused on as her dad's relationship with his heritage. But again, covering this fact real quick that like she is specifically biracial, but it's never mentioned that like Beckendorf is biracial or that Drew Tanaka is biracial or Ethan Nakamura, which means are the gods just like, are they looking a certain way for certain people? What's going on with that? Jason and Talia also look different, which is interesting. And we'll have to talk about that in the Jason episode. Um, it's just a little confusing and I don't necessarily understand why that is. And we don't want to think that it's like racist because she's the first indigenous character and it's like we're specifically talking about it now i don't know i think it's interesting that rick decided to bring in specifically somebody who had indigenous heritage in a like native american because then we have to talk about the native american gods and like those myths and that spirituality and it's mentioned that her dad aphrodite says that she couldn't reveal herself as a goddess to him because it would have like blown his mind and then he would have had to finally accept the fact that gods are real which is something he's been like 
running from forever because he didn't want to accept that about his own heritage. So many questions about that. Like, does this, so are we implying now that like there is a Percy Jackson-esque modernization of these gods? Mm-hmm. Maybe this is just me. I feel like there is a very fascinating treatment of certain spiritual traditions in the books. Like, there's sort of like a binary categorization where like some spiritual traditions are treated as though like they are fair game in the same broad sense that the Greek mythology, that, that Greek mythology is considered. Like the Cherokee tradition gets taken up this way. I would say like broadly like Buddhism and Taoism in the next book get taken up this way. Like voodoo traditions, if I can use that word, sort of get taken up this way in the next book also. Whereas clearly in America, there are lots of people <laughs> the large majority, some might say, who do not belong to these traditions. And those faith traditions are sort of just like ignored. And how he does not name anything that teases apart that distinction in a way that to me feels satisfying and eases my worries that this is just a really aggressive marginalization and othering. Uh, and like, like faith traditions that are still like real in a way that the green, like, there are not people, to my knowledge today, who pray to Zeus and leave offerings to Zeus, but there are definitely people today who, for instance, protect certain sacred sites because they have certain spiritual ancestral connections to, say, like, Mauna Kea. Or, I don't feel like his ambiguity about this is is is, is good. Um, <laughs> and it makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, if the ambiguity is taken at its best, I think it's kind of what we were talking about way earlier on about the coexisting of like the Egyptian gods and stuff like that, where like, it's just a different, it like happens at the same time. And like, we just don't, if you don't think about it, it's fine. The Greek gods are just the manifestation of like cultural beliefs. Then anything that has like enough people really culturally believing in it can like manifest itself in this way in the Percy Jackson universe. I don't know what that means for different, you know, religions and spiritual traditions and stuff like that. Also, the fact that Hawaii is in America. Again, what does that mean for Greek mythology in Hawaii specifically? It gets mentioned in the end of this book again. There was a Party Ponies convention in Honolulu in 2010, which is yep. very recent. And now that we have the Riordan Presents books. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's an interesting line between, so there are people practicing like pagans and Wicca that do worship like, Greek, Greek god, like Hellenistic gods, uh, Egyptian gods, Norse gods, Celtic gods. Like I'm pagan, I uh, but like choose pick and choose kind of in a way. But I think the difference here is a lot of people who uh, practice those religions is uh, either recreationist or like picking and choosing from dead religions. They're religions that died out and are being recreated and have had already a huge um cultural impact in in writings and teachings and it's more pulled from the stories told about the religions than the practices of the religions whereas some of the other things that are brought in are religions that are more set and their practices that are played with and not stories that are played with so that's where the gray area comes in like i wouldn't never see any problem with the Greek, using Greek mythology, using Norse mythology, because it's been done a lot. But then you get into like, religions that have survived for a long period of time, that are still active. And then it's a gray area, because you kind of do want to include them and suggest that they could be real. But also by including them, you're also suggesting that they're not real. Yes. Like, by framing them in the similar way as the Greek gods, you're saying that they are, like, 
ancient and, and dunzo. And yeah, there's the implication that they're like no longer practicing. It is, in my view, like it seems like he's like cordoning off like the monotheistic religion, religions as like the real and the untouchable in these books. And therefore, like, leaving out other, like, very prominent faith traditions, like, say, Hinduism, that, like, are, like, very widely practiced. And, like, it makes me uncomfortable how, like, those might fall fall, fall in this. Yeah, which is why I am really eager to read some of the other Riordan Presents books. I agree, because the, the Riordan Presents books go into these other religions written by people who are culturally from those areas that the religions are practiced or are mm-hmm. practicing members of that religion or even just members of a culture that like have folk tales that they can then play exactly on. and that's i think that's maybe is the interesting thing that is also like a much larger conversation of like what is a religion and spirituality and what is like myth and folk tale mm-hmm. folklore which is i'm excited yeah. to think a lot yeah. more about especially in the next book i'm excited to do some more research about like haitian voodoo and like um, voodoo practices in Louisiana. I think that's a good segue. Is there anything else anyone would like to mention on this or like other Piper thoughts? I I just want to like, not that this is the most well-qualified panel to think about this question, but like, <laughs> I'm still, I, I feel a little mixed still about like how, how we think about this portrayal of Piper's heritage, just like overall, like, do we think that it's, you know, like thoughtful, respectful, healthy, because I, th- there were like some moments that made me a little uncomfortable but like also i feel like it would be weird if such a character were to not exist and for rick Riordan to just not like not try to like think deeply and write like sort of extensively about indigenous people given that his whole premise for these books is about greek mythology incarnating in like north america i can't speak on this like for myself obviously but i (laughs) I've, i've read a lot there was a big discourse a while ago about I can't remember the exact details of it, but it had something to do with the feather that um, yeah, Piper it wears. Was, people were drawing the feather in P- Piper's hair, which is not, not like something that would happen every single day. Yeah, for somebody who is like yeah. of Cherokee heritage. And, so, and yeah. so I was reading like a lot of the discourse of that. And it's interesting to see. I've seen a lot of stuff on both sides of people really thinking this is great representation and people thinking it's really lazy representation. But I think the overall thing I was able to draw from all the stuff that I read was it seems people agree that it's better to have inclusion, even if it's not completely there, than to not Mm -hmm. have the inclusion at all, which is clearly debatable. But from a lot lot of the sources of uh, Indigenous people writing about Piper as a character... That's what I gleaned. Yeah. And yeah. McLean. This book was in 2010, and I don't know exactly what research Rick did. I don't know exactly who helped him write this character. But, like, I do think that it gave everyone an opportunity to have more conversations. Like, even this conversation that was recent about what is culturally appropriate and not appropriate in, like, representation of the character. Like, at least, like, gives people an opportunity to think and have those conversations that they wouldn't have had. I think we have to, like, see how Piper grows and how her heritage plays a role in her character in the coming books in the series. Here's a quote from page 110, where Piper is having a flashback of a conversation with her dad. Um, 
And he says, lots of similarities between Greek and Cherokee, Dad agreed. Wonder what your grandpa would think if he saw us now sitting at the end of the Western land. He'd probably think we were ghosts. So you're saying you believe those stories? You think mom is dead? His eyes watered and Piper saw the sadness behind them. She figured that's why women were so attracted to him. On the surface, he seemed confident and rugged, but his eyes held so much sadness. Women wanted to find out why. They wanted to comfort him and they never could. Dad told Piper it was a Cherokee thing. They all had that darkness inside them from generations of pain and suffering, but Piper thought it was more than that. I don't believe the stories he said. They're fun to tell. But if I really believed in ghost country or animal spirits or Greek gods, I don't think I could sleep at night. I always be looking for someone to blame. So there's like a lot <laughs> going yeah. on in those like four paragraphs about like their culture, their relationship with their culture, the diaspora relationship with spirituality and like the modern age, which I think is really messy, but I think it's like interesting to think about i guess if that makes sense i i do i do like that it it doesn't imply that one is right and one is not and it also implies that like atheism is accepted it's very it's a very open idea i think it's very easy when writing something surrounding a a belief system to say one thing is right and one thing is not because that's the easy thing to do for your writing and I do like that it's kept open. Yeah, I think we've been going at this for a while now, but this is something that just occurred to me that like, I think what would have helped it would have helped it be like more positive representation is if we had more clarification on how like written in the book somewhere about like the history of how indigenous culture was harmed by Western civilization, which is such a big part of the book. And if the <laughs> Greek gods literally represent Western civilization and this like manifest destiny and this like imperialism that has not really been named yet, if that could be <laughs> brought into this conversation about Piper's heritage and if she could like actively oppose the Greek gods in that way or feel a lot of tension in herself um, of being part of these two things, I think that might make it a little bit more interesting if we got a little bit more recognition of the tension between the gods and her cultures, how that culture really is like marginalized in our current society. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I think the area where it makes me feel uncomfortable is I think there's a degree to which like Piper's native heritage is almost written in some parts as sort of just like a source of like inspiration for her in yeah. certain like moments for her to draw on at certain times when she feels like it for like yeah. stories from her like yeah. grandpa who is like kind of cool but also like kind of tropey in the way that they write him um and that just does not to me feel like a really really lived in idea of what it means to like be of like a certain like marginalized background it's, it's not like a wall that you tap on sometimes it's something that like is just like there and like affects you <laughs> like, yeah whether you want to do or not and it, yeah, yeah. Although Piper did grow up really, like, disconnected from that side of her heritage. So, like, yes. there is that aspect of it, too. Like, I think it is interesting that it's it's more about her dad's relationship with it than hers because she's so, yes. like, disconnected, which is also very valid. Um, but, yeah, interesting things to think about. <laughs> no good answer, but, like, glad we took the time to think about that. And we're going to continue to think about it through the rest of Piper's appearances. Brayden, thank you a lot for coming on for this. We were like, oh, it's gonna be so hard to find somebody who's like a Piper stan. Turns out it wasn't. Um, and <laughs> I am growing into a Piper stan myself. I love that. And I'm excited, excited to uh, consult with you as it as it happens. Um, would you like to plug your podcast again for us real quick and where we can listen to it? Yes, uh, my podcast is Return to Camp Half-Blood. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, at Return to Camp. 
Uh, currently, we are going through Titan's Curse. We're, prob- we're about like halfway through, I think, when this episode will come Ooh, out. Best book. Uh, it is very fun. We're enjoying it a lot. Um, it's very queer and anti-capitalist. Yeah. So. Yay! Yes, and follow us on Instagram, at Podcast, Twitter, at Pod. Follow and subscribe and give us positive ratings or give us negative ratings. We value honesty, though it will make it will hurt us inside. Um, yeah, next. like <laughs> we do prefer positive ratings. <laughs> <laughs> so next week we are going to be back with an episode about Leo with some special guests who will be returning. Thank you, literally, so much, Brayden, for being here. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you back when we need to talk about Piper again. Oh hell yes! <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Bye. Thank you.